Hello, greetings, thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. Now when you think about heaven, what comes to mind? Probably, like most people, you think about something up in the sky, right? And uh, a lot of people think of heaven as that's where God and Jesus are. Uh, in popular imagery, we have the idea of pearly gates, St. Peter standing at the gate and things like that. I think most people think of it as the place where people go when they die. Because heaven features very prominently in the way that a lot of people, especially in modern American Western culture, look at uh, the afterlife. People see heaven as the place of the departed. Some have claimed to experience it in near-death experiences. And most people think they're going there. But what do the scriptures say about all of this? What do the scriptures say about the relationship between heaven and the afterlife? And what can we expect in terms of heaven and the afterlife? Will be our discussion today. And we do well to begin by exploring a little bit about what the scriptures teach about heaven. The concept of heaven is really kind of an extension of sorts of the heavens. So in Genesis 1, God, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. And so he begins by setting apart the waters above from the waters below, and he makes an expanse, a firmament between them, and that expanse of firmament is heaven. Uh, and so the first heaven that we would consider would be the atmosphere, where birds fly and things of that nature, and second heaven would be the universe, where the sun and moon and stars all inhabit. In Deuteronomy 10, 14, 1 Kings 8, 27, Nehemiah 9, 6, uh, Moses, Solomon, Nehemiah speak of the heaven of heavens. Uh, is that the same as the third heaven that Paul will speak about in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4? Uh, we just can't, we can't know for certain. Is it a way of speaking of the dwelling place of God, like we can see in the Psalms in many other places? And um, we don't know exactly where that heaven of heavens is or how that works. Uh, on this basis, perhaps, Paul speaks of having gone up to the third heaven, to paradise, in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4. Uh, as he says there, he did not know whether he or the person involved was in the body or out of the body, uh, but he saw in a vision or a revelation, and it was uh, he saw things so uh, unspeakable that they cannot be uttered, uh, heard unutterable things. And so um, there's that third heaven idea, but also in Ephesians 4.10, Paul says that Jesus ascended to a place far above all the heavens. And so... Maybe all this is the heaven of heavens. Maybe all there's different levels of heaven. Again, it's very hard to know these things uh, as as humans beyond what is revealed in Scripture, and Scripture's not just really set out the nature of the spiritual, the heavenly realm in any systematic way. One thing that does come across though thoroughly in Psalm 11:4, 14:2, 20, and verse 6, and in many other passages, is that God dwells in heaven. That's the picture over and over again. So that's why in Matthew 6 and verse 9, the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven. In Acts 1, 11, Philippians 3, 20, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, the Lord Jesus goes up to heaven in the ascension. He uh, he is in heaven, and from it we, we await his return, and he will return one day from heaven. And in John 1, 31, 1 Peter 1, 12, the Holy Spirit has been sent from heaven. And this is something envisioned very powerfully in Revelation 4 and 5. Uh, where John sees the throne seen in heaven with God on the throne and Jesus the Lamb as though slain in his presence. 
Now, the scriptures do speak about heaven as up above and the dwelling place of God, but it also complicates that narrative. Now, we've mentioned 1 Kings 8, 27 before, uh, where Solomon talked about the heaven of heavens, and he, he does that because he's saying, heaven of heaven cannot contain you, much less this house I have built. Uh, in Ephesians 4 and verse 6, all things are through God and in God, and in Acts 17 and verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. In 2 Kings 6, 16-17, we were given reason to believe that there may be spiritual beings present, but seen only uh, in, in certain times when God uh, reveals the, that realm around uh, people. In Ephesians 4, 10, as we already mentioned, Jesus ascended far above all the heavens so he could fill all things. Uh, so if heaven is God's dwelling place and God is around as much as up, that means it's true also with heaven, maybe a dimension beyond our perception that suffuses our reality. And so we look at heaven, and we go through this to try to get an idea of what we mean when we talk about heaven. The ancients perceived the heavens above them, the sky and the atmosphere. These heavens are above and beyond them. God is the creator of all things, is also above and beyond. God communicates from above. He appears in forms from above and reinforces that perception of being above. But God's also given hints that he is around as much as up, that he is still transcendent. He is upholding and sustaining all things, even within the creation. So heaven may yet be up and is up in some degree, but also may be around. All around our, all of it's beyond our perception, excuse me. And there are places that we're not going to find with a telescope or things like that. So that's what we see about heaven. Now what about the afterlife? And we're going to focus really on how the afterlife relates uh, to Christians. The story of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16, 19 through 31 tends to capture people's imagination. And a lot of people have taken that story and see it as the gospel in terms of the afterlife. It envisions a divided afterlife. There's a place of comfort and a place of torment, and there's a barrier in between. And in that picture, there's comfort given Abraham's bosom for the righteous, and there's torture for the wicked. Angels brought the Lazarus in the story to Abraham's bosom. Hades is associated with a place of torture. Now, uh, the details of the story of Lazarus and the rich man are hard to square entirely with everything else that's revealed about the subject. And that's why it's, it's complicated to just say this is the way the afterlife is. Uh, Hades, which is the Greek term, Hebrew is Sheol, in the Old Testament is a place for all the dead. In fact, Peter would speak of Jesus spending time in Hades between his death and resurrection based upon the prophecy of Psalm 16. You will not... Um, abandon my soul to Sheol or Hades. And Peter's whole demonstration that God has not abandoned the soul of Jesus because Jesus is risen. Jesus otherwise will speak of the place of torment as Gehenna, which is a burning trash pit, or the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth in Matthew 5, 29-30, or 25 and verse 30. Now the Greek word and conception of hell is Tartarus, and it's only found in 2 Peter 2, 4. And it's a place where sinful angels were cast and enchained. It's probably the same place as the fate of all the wicked that Jesus will speak of in Matthew 25:41 and following, where he condemns all those who have not uh, provided for those in need uh, to the place reserved for the devil and his angels. Now, the images used regarding Abraham's bosom are consistent with the images that will be used of heaven and paradise, but these terms are not being explicitly used in this story. Whereas we have reason to believe Christians will go to heaven, as we will see. The expectation that the righteous automatically went there in the Old Covenant days would be hard to sustain and substantiate just based on what has been revealed. So the other option, of course, is paradise. And uh, paradise is spoken of in Luke 23, 43, 2 Corinthians 12, 4, and in Revelation 2, 7. 
The word paradise is a Persian word for an ordered garden. Eden is described as a paradise. So in Genesis 2-4 in the Septuagint, it is called a paradiso, uh, the paradise. Uh, and it becomes a standard conception of paradise as an ordered garden. Now Jesus assures a thief on the cross that both of them would be in paradise that day in Luke 23-43. And as we said in 2 Corinthians 12-4, Paul talks about having been caught up to heaven. The third heaven. And called it paradise. Now Jesus may speak of this place in Revelation when he says that those who overcome will will have a place in paradise of God, but he might be envisioning there the final life in the resurrection in paradise as in the beginning, since the scene in Revelation 21 and 22 is very consistent with that image and would create the good parallelism there within the book of Revelation. So that's the idea of paradise. We're going to set that aside because uh, there's the idea of the fate of the righteous as dwelling with God. Now in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7, the author of, of Ecclesiastes is moving somewhere and he says that at death the soul goes to, or the life force at least, goes back to the God who gave it. In John 14, Jesus establishes um, a message of promise. Let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And so Jesus is preparing a place in his death and resurrection so we can go and be with God. Philippians 1, 23-25, Paul recognizes it's far better to go and be with Christ. Uh, more needful to remain in the flesh for the sake of the Philippian Christians and for others. And in Revelation 6, 9-11, 7-9-17, and 15, 1-4, within the vision of Revelation, John is seeing Christians surrounding the throne of God in various ways. In Revelation 6, there are the souls under the altar, a very visceral representation of those sacrificed for the faith. Uh, it's a, almost as a blood offering. Uh, and they're waiting for judgment. They're waiting for vindication. They're told to wait. In Revelation 15, the ones who overcome the beast stand before the throne. Now, in chapter 7, and yes, a lot of this is images, but the images can be made sense of. You have the 144,000 on earth who are sealed, and that's a symbolic number for all those who are Christians on the earth. But then, in verse 9, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and around the four living creatures, and they all fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God and for be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. He said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall thirst any more. And the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's a beautiful vision. Well, you see that? It's located within a uh, time where there are still Christians on earth. 
And so even if it, you rec want to see that those uh, coming out of tribulation are only a certain subset of Christians, this still means there is at least a certain subset of Christians envisioned as surrounding the throne, praising God in some way in the current space-time continuum, or while the current space-time continuum is doing its thing. And it's before the consummation of all things. It's before the day of resurrection. And it's such a beautiful picture of comfort and peace. Now, 2 Peter 3.13, Revelation 21.22, uh, the picture is given of the fullness of the hope that's promised in Isaiah 65 and 66, that there will be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, it's often argued whether this is a restoration of the current created order, uh, or new as in um, recreated, that everything uh, burned up and then had to be reestablished, uh, is very argued, in, intensively argued, I should say. It's very dependent also on whether you look at Romans 8, 17-25 as normative and explain 2 Peter 3 in terms of it, or you look at 2 Peter 3 as normative and interpret Romans 8 in terms of it. Uh, regardless, uh, the new heavens and new earth are the way that the future is envisioned after the day of judgment and the day of resurrection. And in that picture, a very powerful and important thing is to be noted that I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And then in verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. And he continues. So, you see that there is a movement from heaven to somewhere that's not heaven, we would imagine be the new earth. Uh, we see that it, God's dwelling place is with man, not the other way around. Now we see a picture of uh, the city, which is compared to the bride, who is Ephesians 5, the church, glorified. And we're going to get into that more in a little bit about what that might mean. And it might well mean that as it was in the days of the fall, before the fall, the veil between heaven and earth will be lifted and the intimate associations between heaven and earth will be manifest again in this new heavens and the new earth. And we should know well that the same promises that came to the saints in heaven praising God in Revelation 7 are now given here in the new heavens and new earth as all Christians and all people who are righteous from the days of old and so on receive the same benefits and promise. So these are the ways the afterlife is presented in Scripture, especially in the New Testament. And so I hope that you can see why we need to talk about the association with heaven and the afterlife, because uh, there's a lot of ways all of that gets put together. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of folk religion brought into it. And so the picture that most people have about it ends up being a big mess. Now, most New Testament evidence strongly suggests that the righteous, that is, those who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus and have sought his purposes, will go to heaven when they die, awaiting the resurrection. Uh, that Jesus' purpose is to reconcile God and man. That's his whole idea, that we have died to sin when we die in, in Christ's baptism. 
and that he died to reconcile us to God. Romans 5, 6-11, chapter 6, 1-7. And the idea is that in baptism we have spiritual life renewed to the point where in Romans 8, 10, Paul can say the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. In Ephesians 2 and verse 6, a very fascinating passage, Paul says, um, and God raised us up with Jesus and seated us with him in the heavenly places. The heavenlies, the heavenly place. Now, we haven't gotten into the heavenly place as much in this particular discussion. Uh, that would be a discussion for another time because it tends to involve powers, principalities perhaps, and, and other such things. But there is a sense in which Christians are already in heavenly places, even though none of us have physically left the earth. And the question, though, here is for us is that if we can have spiritual life now, if we think that we have a reconciled relationship to God now in the Spirit, and Jesus went to prepare a place that we would be with him, why would that change after death and before the resurrection? Why we have a time where we have been in association with God, lose that association for a temporary period of time until the resurrection and get it back again? It, that's something that's not stated in Scripture. It's not seen in scripture and in fact scripture militates against it when paul says things like i want to go and be with christ for that is very much better but where is christ he's in heaven so where is paul looking to go he's looking to go to heaven and that's the evidence that makes sense in philippians 1 makes sense of revelation 7 is other evidence we will go and be with christ who's in heaven and we'll be in heaven when we die because jesus prepared that place for us in john 14 1 through 3. Now, this fate is not going to be shared by those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, according to 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9. Because the wicked, those who had never believed in God, as well as previous members of the covenant who persisted in transgression, will suffer torment in hell, Matthew 5, 25, and other passages. Uh, now, the, hell is a spiritual place. It may be part of the heavenlies, we talked about, we don't know. But it's not directly associated with heaven. And where its location might be it would be a, a, an argument in and of itself. Uh, the ancients certainly at least conceived of it as something in the core underneath the earth. And that may still be used as a metaphorical concept um, in the New Testament. Uh, we don't know. It would be hard to identify that place uh, any more or less easily as it is to identify uh, heaven although we understand that it does involve separation from God and, and from the power of his might, how exactly that works will be something we will understand uh, in, in another, uh, when we uh, go to heaven or in the resurrection, if ever. This also leaves an important question. We've been talking about Christians in the New Testament. What does this mean about uh, faithful uh, believers in uh, previous times? Uh, the patriarchs, or people in the Old Testament. Well, Enoch and Elijah are translated to heaven in Genesis 5.24 and 2 Kings 2.11. And so that we essentially imagine they dwell in heaven somehow. Um, in Matthew 17.1-3, uh, Elijah is, is with Jesus in the transfiguration, but so is Moses. So even though Moses is dead and buried, um, although again with Jude, the idea that maybe his body was recovered uh, is up there. Uh Moses is ostensibly in heaven if he can appear with Jesus in the transfiguration, at least long enough for him to have seen, been with Jesus in the transfiguration. And yet in verse 20, Samuel 28, 13 through 19, uh, Samuel is in Sheol. And however understood with righteous and wicked, uh, we would generally put Samuel inside the righteous, and we generally put Saul and his, some of his sons, at least in the, in the place of the wicked. And yet Samuel will say, as a, as a spirit, that uh, 
Saul and his sons will be with him tomorrow. They're going to die, and they're going to be in the same place Samuel is. And this is consistent with what we see in the rest of the Old Testament, the expectation that everybody goes to Sheol. So Jacob is expecting to go to Sheol in Genesis 37, 35. Uh, yet the sons of Korah in their rebellion are swallowed up in the earth and enter Sheol directly in Numbers 16:33. Again, going back to that idea that Sheol is under the earth. And, and, and everyone is in Sheol in Psalm 89, 48. Now, in, in order to kind of make some sense of this, there is the uh, idea of the harrowing of hell that has been uh, suggested. A belief that Jesus went into Sheol between his death and resurrection to reclaim the righteous souls and bring them to heaven. Now, maybe there's something about this in Ephesians 4 where Paul will say that uh, in that saying he ascended, what does it mean but that Jesus had also descended to the lower parts of the earth? First uh, Peter three eighteen to nineteen uh, that in previous days Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison, um, but th th that is certainly not the necessary conclusion from those verses. Perhaps the righteous always went to be with God, even if that was only imperfectly manifest in what had been revealed previously about Sheol. Um, we we don't know. Uh, we have confidence that the faithful of all time will share in the resurrection of life in John 5, 20 and 29, but we cannot be certain if they are presently in heaven or, or not. And we, again, we'll have more about that when we cross over to the other side. Now, what about paradise? We had talked about paradise. Jesus went to paradise when his death and resurrection. Paul was lifted up there um, in Luke 23 and 2 Corinthians 12. Now, some are not convinced that it is the same place, since Jesus is otherwise seen as going down to Hades, or the depths of the earth, and Paul went up above. And actually, 31 verse Ephesians 4, 9. And also, some see that John 20 and verse 17 would complicate that narrative, since Jesus said he had not yet ascended to the Father, and if paradise is up there, he'd assume he'd be with his Father. Um, but it is possible that paradise is part of heaven, but somehow delimited from God's presence. But that that doesn't seem likely. Paradise, like Abraham's bosom, is most likely a way of speaking of heaven, being with God in a place of comfort and peace. Now, when it comes to Jesus and being abandoned to Sheol, there's nothing in that passage that necessitates that Jesus' soul spirit ever went there. It just means he wasn't going to be abandoned. It wasn't going to be left there. You could say he's not going to be there and, and, and stay there. Uh, Peter's using David's language there, and he's drawing the contrast since David is dead and buried and ostensibly has been in Sheol. Uh, ever since, and therefore he could not be speaking of himself. And even if Jesus did descend to Sheol for a moment, he could have also gone up to paradise or heaven afterward. Uh, we don't know how long that would have taken. Both things could have happened uh, in that time frame. We weren't there. And in John 20, verse 17, the whole point is Jesus had not yet ascended to the Father in the ascension. He had not yet appeared before uh, the Ancient of Days to receive a kingdom and power as the one like a son of man, uh, according to Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Uh, just because he had not yet ascended to the Father that way does not mean that he had not actually go to be with the Father uh, between his death and resurrection. So we need to be careful about how necessary are some of our conclusions about this. Is it possible these, th these things can work next to each other? And in the end, I think it makes best sense of everything to look at paradise as a way of speaking about heaven. Now what about Peter and those pearly gates that we talked about? And this gets into the fact that a lot of ideas about heaven are really based in myth and conventional imagery and folk religion. Now, the Pearly Gates comes from Revelation 21:21, where in the city that we saw coming down from heaven, the gates are made of pearls, 12 pearls. Uh, now, in the context, the city is the bride, New Jerusalem, glorified. And so, it, why, all, why pearls? Why emerald? Why sapphire? Where, why all these precious stones? Why streets of gold? 
uh, when you see something so fabulous and glorious that words just fail, you, you're reaching for imagery that denotes something exquisite. And for people throughout time, Precious Jewels has been that communication medium. And so G Paul, John is seeing this amazing glory and conceives of it in terms of stones, precious jewels, and things of that nature. But the idea is that this is the the city is the people. It's the city is the church. The people glorified. And so you are not the streets of gold. I'm sorry, you are you're not walking the streets of gold. You are the streets of gold. And of course, you're not a street of gold. It's just the glory which God intends to give to His people in the resurrection. Romans eight. Uh, 1718 speaks to this as well and it again it's hard to square therefore the idea it's really taking an image making it very concrete and missing the point because that city is going to come down from heaven now you could say that, okay that city up now is right now up in heaven waiting to come down um and so maybe its placement in heaven right now is not inaccurate but it's not going to stay there and you probably should not be expecting to see an actual pearly gate is kind of is the purpose of this conversation it may be there to help you out in an anthropomorphism but maybe that we shouldn't necessarily expect that to be a concrete reality wherever heaven is however that is conceived now peter is imagined to stand there because in matthew 16 19 uh he said that the gates of the kingdom of heaven and so much has been made of peter as the gatekeeper because he's got the keys he can open the door for you uh, but what does it mean to have the keys of the kingdom? It doesn't mean he becomes heaven's bouncer. It means that he has the means by which we can obtain heaven. That It's the gospel, the power of God and salvation, Romans 1.16. He's the first one who preaches it, and it's something that the apostles all share in common. And it's not a key that is only uniquely Peter's. Uh, it's a key that's been given to all of us as we proclaim and embody the gospel. And so we should not imagine that Peter's going to be up there judging to see if we're going to get in or not. That's not how this is going to work. Uh, we do get the impression that heaven's going to be a place of comfort and rest and, and the glorification of God around his throne from Revelation 4 through 7. And it may not be much of an extension to see angels escorting souls from the world to God. You know, Luke 16, Lazarus, yes, was taken up by the uh, angels to Abraham's bosom. Hebrews 1.14, their ministering spirits sent to the to, to work with those who are obtaining salvation. So it may happen, may not. Again, not going to be dogmatic about it, but that would not be out of the range of possibility, something we have some reason to have confidence in. Uh, another important thing is the idea of intercessions of the saints. Uh, and really, that's the question, how concretely do we understand Hebrews 12.1, that cloud of witnesses that surrounds us? How literally is it surrounding us? What are they doing? Um... The soul, what the souls that departed are doing, you know, whether they interact in a meaningful way with the world as we perceive it, is not revealed in Scripture at all. But it's not ruled out either. Uh, Revelation 6, 10, 11, we may have the right to say that, well, they see that justice has not been done for them yet. So they're maybe aware to some degree of what's going on in, on the physical plane here in Earth. But the fully formed doctrines of intercession of the saints, as seen in certain uh, religious groups, is not present in Scripture. And it's very important to note in Scripture, there's no expectation that we should ask the departed to speak to God on our behalf, or that that would provide any benefit to us. Uh, Jesus intercedes for us. The Spirit intercedes for us. But we can speak directly to God through the name of Jesus. Uh, in John 14, 15, and many other passages. So why would we 
need to do an end around to ask uh, certain people uh, to ask God for things for us when we can talk to God ourselves. Now, is our time in heaven permanent? A lot of people kind of look at that. We'd get die and go and be with heaven in heaven, and that's where we're going to be forever. Uh, but in John 14, too, when the root word there that so famously is translated mansions in the King James really is rooms. It's, it's a place that means a temporary dwelling place. And if it's a temporary dwelling place, it means it's not permanent. Uh, the ultimate destination for everyone is not to be disembodied in the presence of God. It's the resurrection, where the soul is reunited with the body, restored, or the body is transformed from mortality. And First Corinthians 15. Now, the resurrection of condemnation is uh, what the wicked are going to experience, according to John 5, 20 and 29, and it's at least to eternal fire in Matthew 25, 41, in that Tartarus place, that hell place that is mentioned. A resurrection of life is envisioned for the glorified people of God, who come down from heaven, and God will dwell in their midst, as we saw there. Such beautiful imagery in Revelation 21-22. And we understand it in terms of resurrection, thanks to John 5 and many other passages. Now, the exact ontology of the new heavens and the earth, it's nature. How they re uh, relate to heaven as God's dwelling place is left entirely unrevealed. But if we take the language of Revelation 21 seriously, it's hard to accept the idea of a permanent dwelling in heaven, but instead life in the new earth with God present with us, and maybe the blurring of the, 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 the lines or the veil is lifted between the imminent and transcendent so that we're all seeing everything as face to face. Uh, the kind of the hope of First Corinthians 13 uh, may be going on there. So that's heaven and the afterlife according to the scriptures. And so I hope we can see why there's a lot of confusion, why a lot of people uh, have very messy views on it, because it's very hard to make a systematic portrayal. It really isn't one. There is a glimpse and hints and ways of putting things, and it's left to see how they relate. But we can see for certain that heaven is a dwelling place of God, envisioned in terms of the heavens as above and beyond. It's a transcendent plane of reality above, but it's also likely within and suffusing our own. From all evidence, it would seem that those who trust in God and Christ go to heaven when they die. They experience comfort, peace, and rest in the presence of God and Jesus. But the righteous will remain in that condition until the day of resurrection. The fate of the wicked is not so. Uh, they will not enjoy all the joys of heaven. They will obtain terrors of condemnation and eternal fire. And so that is why it's important for all of us to put our trust in Jesus, to accomplish God's purposes that he set forth in him, that we may go to heaven and then obtain the resurrection found this beneficial, we really encourage you to share it with friends and family and others on social media and other places. If you'd like to talk with us about what we talked about here, if you have any questions, comments, or anything else, you'd like a prayer request, uh, I'd like to check us out. Uh, please find us online at VenusChurchChrist.org. We're also on social media. And if I can be of service personally, please uh, reach out to me at my website at DeVerboVitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Again, thank you. Have a great day.